And the preaching of God's Word is found at Luke 16, verses 23 through 26. We considered a couple of weeks back the uh, preceding passage of the same narrative that Christ is presenting to us of the rich man and Lazarus, the great change that comes at death. We're not to judge things by the way we see them in this world, but we're to remember there's a change coming that those who have trusted in Christ, whatever their outward estate in this world, shall enter upon unspeakable glory, even as Lazarus was raised up. But likewise, those who perish, whatever their outward estate and blessing, without faith in Christ, shall be plunged into an abiding and perilous misery. And it is to this which Christ draws our attention with greater care. Notice again those verses as it speaks of the rich man. Verse 23, And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. It is a solemn thought to meditate on that a great number of men and women and children in this present age await the torment of what we've just read. People that you pass by every day of your life, think of this for a moment, their life will pass, as the Scriptures say, of all of our lives as a vapor. It is there for but a split second, it seems, and then so long as, or so soon as life is taken, they shall be plunged into this estate of continuous, perpetual, and immeasurable misery. And, of course, some in the church even contend against any thinking upon hell, because so the thought is today that it is unkind, perhaps it is imbalanced, perhaps it is wrongly intended, as some would say, to try to scare people into heaven. Well, we have no hesitation in acknowledging that it is not something the world readily receives, and it is not something that our flesh would naturally embrace. But we ought to remember that our instruction, our balance, our teaching is not to be governed by the present air of our culture, but is to be guided by the teaching of Christ. It is none less than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who is most merciful and gracious and good, who here directs our attention to the torment of hell. And so if one would say the church ought not to do so, It is, by necessary consequence, a criticism against the king and head of the church who did so. He embraced this teaching, for it is true. He set forth this teaching, for it is necessary for us to consider a larger 
number of people show either their ignorance or embarrassment or perhaps their fear of treating of such a doctrine. And they do this by the relative silence that is shown in their ministries. There's another group, which is perhaps on the opposite end of the spectrum, which would make this the whole emphasis of preaching. That all of their sermons, perhaps all of their focus, would come back to this teaching and truth regarding hell, and often do so mocking others, deriding others. You see them, as it were, with smiles on their faces. Think of the absolute contradiction. Smiles on their faces as they rejoice that those to whom still have life and the gospel is preached should enter into hell. Brethren, we have need to correct both the silence and the imbalance regarding the teaching of hell. And the best way is to do so by holding forth the truth of Scripture. We have need here in this doctrine as in all other doctrines, to learn from our Master. That we would not be victims of the culture and its, as it is called today, the cancel culture that cancels everything out, derides everything, and says it's uh, unnecessary, unneeded, or cruel. But neither that we react uh, in a wrong way to imbalance. Notice the text before us. It presents to us the doctrine of hell. And yet it does so in a most moving way. The rich man and Lazarus are still before us. The rich man who was in this life blessed in many ways beyond measure is now in the next life and that everlastingly cursed above measure. Whereas Lazarus, who had as his only friends dogs which did lick his sores, is now carried by angels into the very presence of God and the fullness of God's covenant there in the expression of Abraham's bosom. Now we ought to see something here. Father Abraham is not God. But what's being helpfully presented to us is the whole expectation of God's covenant. The faith of Abraham, the covenant of God in Abraham is ultimately and finally realized in heaven. It's not ultimately and finally It is to say that it is anticipating that belonging and fellowship with Abraham. You remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, we're told that John reclined his head upon the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a sign of fellowship and feasting and intimacy and acceptance, and communion. And now here, Lazarus, who in this story was rejected of men, who was ignored of men, who was filled with misery in this life, is now brought unto the closest and most blessed fellowship of the Father of faith to enjoy the riches of faith now made sight forever. But it's entirely different with the rich man. Notice in hell, verse 23, he's in torments, a word which indicates severe pain. It can be speaking merely of temporal pain, but obviously here it's speaking of something far greater, far worse. Notice the word as it appears to help us understand something of what is indicated here. Matthew and chapter 4, 
It's there that we read in verse 24 that Christ's fame went throughout all Syria and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic and those that had the palsy and he healed them. That same word torments is used here. It's expressive of grief, great pain, great anguish. Brethren, each of you have had seasons relative to your own circumstances where you have experienced great pain. Whether that is through illness or accident or other such difficulties in the Lord's providence brought to you, your body, relative to your own experiences, will have been said to have been tormented. How can we measure the torment that is here captured in this word when it's speaking of those in hell? Notice the torment is contrasted with the comfortable relief given to Lazarus. Notice in verse 24, there's the word cried, which means to lift up one's voice, to make a sound. He's crying out in the torment. Children, what happens when you hurt yourself? but that you cry out. You perhaps cut yourself accidentally and you scream. Or what happens if mom or dad have had to bring you to that point of discipline and they paddle your backside? You cry out. It's not voluntary. You're not sitting there saying, you know what, now I'm going to lift up my voice. It's involuntary. It happens. It's forced. And this is what is gripped him. He cries out and says, it's not just the anguish and, as it were, indiscernible sound, but he's actually expressing his thoughts. What is it he wants? Have mercy on me. Look at the miseries that engulf me. See how I'm overrun by them. This is the torment that he's expressing. And he speaks of there in verse 24, I am tormented in this flame. Hell has been made the laughing ridicule of an unbelieving age. Hell is made to be something that is difficult, something that is perhaps painful. But no one in this world, mind you, no one in this world can fully capture the agony of what is being presented to us in Christ's story of Lazarus, who is crying out, who desires, think of this, in verse 26, it says that he's wanting to pass through, but God says, or Abraham says, there's a great gulf fixed. That is, it will continue. You'll never escape this. It's never over. Children, you go to the doctor's office perhaps, and they have to check something that hurts, and your parents encourage you with this thought, They say, listen, it's going to be awkward. It's going to hurt some. It might even, that your parents or the doctor says, it's going to hurt a lot. But bear with me, because it's going to pass. In five minutes' time, the pain will be over. In ten minutes' time, you won't remember it anymore. But here, the misery the text is presenting to us is something that will endure forever. What kind of misery? Notice his appeal for mercy in verse 24, that he would have but the tip of Lazarus' finger dipped in water to cool his tongue. Think of that for a moment if you've ever been thirsty. What good is it 
for a finger to be dipped in water and then to be placed upon your tongue. At best, you'll get a drop. Such is the overwhelming misery facing Lazarus that he's saying, mercy would be shown to me if you would just give me a drip of water. This is tremendously overwhelming. Who among us can fully fathom these depths? Well, what Christ is presenting in a very clear way is that the sinner who dies in his sin will immediately enter an everlasting agony from which there is no relief. It's so clear, isn't it, when you look at the text? Set aside what the mindless and the idiotic mistreaters of God's Word say. Look at God's Word. God's Word says, so soon as He died, He was buried. Verse 23, it's then that He's in hell that He lifts up His eyes. It's immediate. So soon as He dies, He's in hell. So soon as He dies, He's in misery. Never say again that at least His suffering is over. However painful one dies in this life, if they are not a believer, they would readily come back to the miseries of this life to escape the unquenchable of the life to come. No one in this life who dies outside of Christ knows the slightest relief of the miseries. Whether they were under the most duress of torture, whether they were in the most burning heat of flame this world can offer, they would, without a hesitation, leap back into the rack. They would leap back into the furnace of this world's offerings to find relief from the world to come. The sinner who dies in unbelief and sin will immediately enter into an everlasting agony from which there is no relief. It is this which is regularly set aside. It's this which is regularly ridiculed. But notice, as we work through this, three things to help us see the biblical teaching on this most solemn of truths. Firstly, hell's misery. Secondly, hell's subjects. And thirdly, oh, and in the Lord's mercy that there is such a hope, hell's avoidance. The first then, hell's misery. Let us set it down in our mind that the miseries of hell, first and foremost, are real miseries. It's not something that is morbid that when you feel misery, you should think, this is a faint whisper of what I would face if I die in my sins. When you feel misery, anguish of mind, pain upon your body, you ought to think for a moment, this is a disciplinary measure, as it were, to call me that I might avoid the real misery that is to come, save that I believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what are the miseries? Well, they're physical miseries. This is something that is often ignored. It's set before us clearly in this passage and elsewhere Notice that it's using the language in this story of a tongue. This one is tormented in the flame. His body is being burned. 
Now, it's true we could say, well, you know, the resurrection hasn't happened yet. That's true. We have no hesitation in acknowledging that. But what is it that happens on the last day? We see this, don't we? Christ gathers all the world, not just of that generation, but of every generation prior. Every single individual gathered up and His people set on His right hand and is set on His left hand. And so their bodies, understand, have been brought again to life. And on the last day, He says to His people, enter in to that which is prepared, to heaven, to paradise. But He takes the others and He casts them, body and soul, into hell. The reason Christ is using here physical terms, bodily terms, is because it anticipates the reality of the full-blown miseries that will come upon those who die in their sin. There is no ability to conceive of this because every physical misery you face has some degree of passing or ending. So you can think of this, you know, children, you've heard this before and perhaps it's been said before in different ways, you know, you have something like a band-aid on your hand and the first time you rip it off, it hurts, right? If you take that same band-aid or even a new band-aid, stick it right back on the same place, you rip it off again, it doesn't hurt as bad. You do it again, it doesn't even feel anything anymore. You sort of acclimate to the difficulty. Heat can become something that we get used to. Certain pains become somewhat acquainted. And yet, even if someone says, listen, I have miseries, physical problems that are so acute, so pointed, so severe, that I can find no relief. Some have turned to various medications or to various chemicals to help them find relief from their bodily pain. And yet, so soon as those pass, they say, listen, it's right back at it. I can't find relief. Well, the reality is this. There are certain difficulties that in this life remain and flare up. But what is amazing is that they do pass by degree at least. There are certain things we can look at and find some momentary comfort. So you know this in your own illness. Perhaps your body has been racked with pain and there's no position of comfort you can find. And then what does somebody do? They come and bring you a cup of water. And for that moment, for that split second as you drink, your mind is, as it were, removed from the pain, even for but a second. And you have, as it were, an expression of something good. You have, as for a moment, something that relieves. You have something that, even if it's just for a second, takes your mind off of the difficulty. Or perhaps it is you're feverish and your body's achy and so on, but somehow you glance out the window and you see the blue sky and for that split second, your pain is for a moment forgotten. Now it might return with ferocity the very next. But here's the point. The physical pain in hell has no momentary relief. It has not the split second of any kind of welcomed deliverance. It's not just that there are these waves of affliction. It's a moving thing to read the accounts of the men in the First World War, called the Great War, as they sit 
in their trenches and there's no man's land and they have these series of bombings that come and come and come and then it waits for a second and there's no more bombing. And there's a moment of relief. Oh, for a moment, I don't hear the whistle of the bombs nearing. For a moment, I don't have the fear that this next sound might be my death. For a moment, I, ha- I can take a breath only to know that in another moment it's going to come. Brethren, the physical torment of those in hell is constant and unending. No relief. Spiritual side of it is likewise real. Notice it's expressed and is crying out. We cry out as an expression of desire. There's something there that is compelling him to say, oh, that you would do this. And you can look ahead as we'll get to the Lord willing in the future, this regret that has gripped him as he's saying, listen, send somebody, send Lazarus to go to my brethren that they may hear the testimony of Lazarus. And notice verse 28, lest they also come into this place of torment. And he understands something here. He says, as Abraham says, Listen, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And hear what Lazarus says in verse 30. Or the rich man says in verse 30. Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will what? They will repent. He knows why he's in hell. Isn't it interesting? There's nothing in the rich man's words that says these miseries are unjust. He knows why he's suffering these things. There's no lifted up accusation. God, this is not right. The depth of my agony is so unjust. That's what wicked and vile men say in this world. But every single one who descends into the wrath of God knows without fail that every aspect of everlasting torment is most just unto them. And so his regret is so obvious that he's saying, oh, that you would spare my brothers from these things. The spiritual agony is gripping him as he's seeing it turned over and over again. Every pain a witness to his most foolish life that he should cease to repent, that he would not turn unto God. Doubtlessly, this is something of that worm that dies not, their conscience ever eating at them. The shame, oh, the great shame that will engulf the soul that perishes without Christ. Have you ever known something of regret in this world? Sometimes you can do something about it, can't you? You've popped off at mom or dad, you've mistreated your wife or husband. Time passes. You start breathing normally and your mind comes to and you say, what kind of fool was I? What kind of witness is this? What kind of sin did I commit? And the Lord convicts you. And in every conviction, what is there but a sense of your shame? I have sinned against God and against another person. You come back and there's no longer the pride that's so puffed out your chest. There's no longer the peacock feathers that were flourishing in all of your arrogance. Everything is down. It's what God says in Isaiah 66. 
that he delights in the one who is broken and contrite. Oh, there's brokenness now. There's contrition. We come then to our children, to our parents, to our spouse, and we say, I was a fool. I shouldn't have said those things. I shouldn't have done those things. I was wrong to do that. I am shamed. I am embarrassed. I have sinned against God and against you. Would you please forgive me? You know, there's this expression today about shaming people that is, for some reason, become a great problem. Here's the problem today. People have no shame. People go around naked in public parks and there's no shame. And if someone calls them out, now they're being body shamed. People go around and they showcase all of their wickedness and rebellion. And when someone calls them out, it is then that they're the ones who are provoking and the problem. Brethren, shame is a good thing when the shame is deserved. When we sin against God, when we sin against others, it's not wrong to be shamed. It is the only right response to being aware of our sin. Oh, I've sinned against Him who is only good. I've done that which is wicked. So we're brought low. Now, in this life, we have the hope of forgiveness of God who covers our shame. Do you remember Adam and Eve? They sinned. They cover their shame with their handmade ways. And what does God do? Oh, He draws out their shame. But then He covers their shame with His divine provision. The Gospel preached unto sinners is a covering, among other things, for their shame. But brethren in hell, understand this. There's no covering of the anguish of sin and shame. What's the cause of this? Well, we know it already, don't we? It's sin. But let's be clear. The cause of this misery is not just sin, sort of abstracted out there. It's our sin. Our sin against the God who has made Himself known to us. Someone says, well, wait a second. You know, I get it. The rich man knew because he was obviously a Jew. He's calling upon Abraham as father. But what about the natives in some distant land who don't even have the Scriptures in their language? Well, let's be clear. They may not have the Scriptures which confirm and clarify and hold forth the Gospel, but they do have the light of nature which is as clear as clear can be that every single human owes God nothing but full allegiance, honor, glory, and worship. This is the clear teaching as we sang from Psalm 19. It's listed as well in Romans chapter 1 that though they knew God, they gave God not glory. And God had made known all things that are needed to know about His glory, about the worship to His name, His eternity, His power, His wisdom, such that, and here are the words of Paul, that they are without excuse. The barbaric people who have never had a written language, who have never heard the name Jesus, will not be able to stand before God and say, wait a second, it's not fair, because I didn't know of Jesus Christ. God will simply say this, if He says anything at all. Did you see the sun? Did you see the stars? Did you look at the grass? Did you not see the clear testimony that every aspect of this world is a loud and clarion call saying, worship God. Serve 
God, and that you didn't do it, is a testimony of your crooked and perverse hearts. Oh, He won't send them to hell because they rejected Christ. He'll send them to hell because they sinned against God. Now, brethren, since the advent of the New Covenant, the Gospel has gone forth through many parts of the world. And with it, the law of God has been published in many languages of the world. And a great majority today will not be able to say, I didn't have access to your Word. A great majority will have to admit that they both had access, read God's Word, heard God's Word, and so their sins are against God's written Word, His law, as well as His Gospel. But it's not just our sin. It's God's good justice. If someone came into your house, think of this for a moment. If someone came into your house and murdered your children, and then they're arraigned, they're brought before court, and the court says, listen, I get it, he's done something really bad. This is not acceptable, and we want people to know it's not acceptable. We're going to tell people this is not acceptable, and if anybody else does this, they're going to suffer great wrath. But, you know, I know this person. I know that deep down they're a decent person, and do you really want to do this again? No, judge, I don't want to do this again. Okay, well, you're free to go on, you know. There would be an outcry from the depths of your being. And you would look at that judge in the face and say, you are a wicked man. You are one who is supposed to uphold what is just. And by your wicked governance, you have plagued this generation because justice is not served. Have you ever looked upon the face of people, whether through television or in the flesh and blood of real life, who have experienced injustice? And there's this sense of overwhelming sorrow that justice has not been served. Brethren, justice is not a bad thing. Justice is a good thing. Righteousness is a good thing. The problem is not justice. The problem is that there's any wickedness that demands justice be exercised. So when men come up and they say, listen, you know, this is too much. Hell is too much. The problem is that they do not understand how gross, how abominable, how enormous sin is. Sin is committed against none less than Him who is only worthy of service, worship, adoration, and praise. That ever there is so much as a breath of discontentment is a sign of abominable wickedness bound up in the heart of men. Our world is upside down in getting this wrong. Hell is no obstacle to God's praise. Hell is the display that God is worthy of praise. Hell is the display that God is good. Hell is the display that these things which are right are honored. The problem is not that there's a hell. That gives us no hesitation in our ascribing praise unto God. If there's any problem with which we really have to wrestle, it's this. How is it possible that God should ever forgive one sinner at all? How is it even thinkable that God's majesty should suffer that a sinner should be accepted by Him? Oh, it points out the great joy that fills everyone who realizes this, 
that there is one who has made the just payment for what our sins deserve. Do you know when you ask somebody, listen, do you think you've sinned? And they say, well, you know, I've done some things. I've not done all the worst things. Well, you just keep putting it to them. Okay, well, what does God's law say? It says you shouldn't steal. Have you ever stolen? Well, you know, back when I was 13 years old, I stole this little amount of money from a friend. Okay, did you steal? Yeah, I stole. So what is it? It's sin. Should God send you to hell for that? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know if God should send me to hell for that. Have you ever lied before? Well, you know, who doesn't lie? Isn't it amazing how the heart of men are always ready to divert and to say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Inbuilt in that is a finger lifted up against God that says, you need to take your problems to Him. He's the source of problems. Who would punish me for a lie? Who would send me to hell for stealing? Who doesn't struggle with thoughts and words? Who doesn't struggle with Sabbath-keeping and worshiping God and all of these things? Everyone struggles with it. Here's the point. You're right. That's why, understand this, every single person deserves hell. You, I, everyone. The cause of this misery is that God is just to uphold what is good and to lay forth the punishment against those who have done evil. Every sin will receive that which is only just. All sin is against the One who is only worthy of infinite love and affection. Well, we must press on. We see, of course, that the miseries are endless. There's this great gulf fixed. Notice the language as well of Matthew chapter 25 as Christ is setting before us the last day. And He says there at verse 46, the following, Matthew 25 verse 46, He says, These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Let me ask you this. Is there any Christian who thinks that heaven is not everlasting? Everyone's ready to say, of course, heaven is everlasting. Well, though it is so in your English that the word everlasting prior to punishment appears as a different word than eternal, which appears after life, in the Greek they're the same. Whatever is true of life and its duration is true of death and its duration. Whatever is true of conscious enjoyment of God and bliss and praise for those who have life is true of the torment and pain and agony which is conscious toward those who perish in their sins. Thus, the miseries of hell. Well, quickly then, the hell's subjects. Generally, we know this, it's all who die in their sins. But look at the text, and concretely you'll see something quite significant. We know this. Unbelievers outside God's covenant, they perish. This is why there's a necessity of preaching the Gospel. Romans chapter how shall they believe except one be sent? Right? There's the need for the Gospel to go forth. We aren't those who compromise God's Word and say, well, if they never hear, of course, there's a second chance. No. The Gospel is an economy and administration of grace. The nature of grace is such that no one, no one deserves grace. And so there's no injustice to bring about justice upon those who have sinned, even though they've never heard of the grace of God. But notice here, in particular, 
and includes unbelievers within God's covenant. This is where it starts to become funneled unto us, because each of you is in God's covenant. Each of you has been brought into that covenant. Notice the language of the rich man. He appeals to Abraham, Father Abraham. Someone says, well, anyone might do that. You know, No, listen to Abraham's response. Verse 25, son. There's a covenantal relationship here. The rich man is a Jew. He's in the covenant of God. In his flesh, he bore the sign of circumcision. In his flesh, he had the sign and seal of God's covenant. He had been taught the word of God, whether well or poorly, we don't know. But he's a descendant of Abraham. He's a covenant member of the covenant of grace. He had doubtlessly been brought to the synagogue. He had perhaps even contributed to the synagogue. All of these things are true. But here's the fundamental reality. This covenant member did not embrace the covenant that was held forth to him. This is why he's saying, go to my brethren that they would repent. Implicit in that appeal is, I failed to repent. Understand this. The waters of baptism, as we heard last week, are a tremendous privilege and blessing. The Lord stooping down to us and saying, look at the promises I give to you. Look at the riches held to you. Look at all that I hold out unto you individually. But all of them call for and demand faith and repentance. It's not that we're justified by the waters of baptism. It's not that we're forgiven by the waters of baptism. Hear me well when I say, it's not that you're justified by God's covenant. The covenant holds forth the promise. The covenant holds forth the salvation. Paul testifies so clearly that we are justified by what? By faith. The covenant holds a promise to us and says, here is the way of salvation. Here is the Savior held forth to you. This man who had the substance of that covenant held forth to him now finds himself enduring what is unable to be endured without the upholding of God as He pours out His justice upon him. Notice as well, every class, every race as it were, is liable to this judgment. This man is rich. It's interesting, the disciples at a later occasion stumbled at this. Well, if the rich are hardly saved, who then can be saved? Because they had this mistake that's common in our day. Look, they're blessed of God outwardly. Surely they must be blessed of God inwardly. Look at how outwardly they're flourishing. Surely they must be flourishing in spiritual things. Brethren, the subjects who fill the gulf of fiery damnation are those who have heard the gospel, those who were circumcised, some who were baptized, and oh, what a thought, some who even from whose lips the Word of God was read publicly, preached, and so on. Because it's not about, am I in God's covenant outwardly? The question is, have I embraced that covenant by faith? Oh, let me hold this out to you very clearly. The Lord appeals to you in light of the privilege afforded to you. 
to justify God and embrace that covenant and say, He is mine. Well, lastly, hell's avoidance. Negatively, what will not cause one to avoid hell? I've touched on some of this. Common errors prevail. Earthly prosperity. You know, people have this inbuilt mistake. You know, life's going well. God is good. God is pleased with me. Here's a man who prospered outwardly and yet was plunged into hell. Civil morality and outward religion are not sufficient. You remember the rich young ruler who comes to Christ and he cries out, what must I do to be saved? He says, look at the law, right? The law says these things. What does the law say? And the law is read. And he says, I've kept all these from my youth. And you know what? No one stood up and said, wait, time out. No, remember that time that you didn't? Outwardly, he was looked upon as righteous. Outwardly, he was a religious man. And yet he went away grieved. These are not the things which cause us to avoid hell. Positively, what does cause us to avoid is preeminently the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see this more fully next week. But notice, there's the implication that this man in hell had access to Moses and the prophets. Abraham says in verse 29, listen, your brothers, they have Moses and the prophets. Is a way of saying they have the Scriptures of the Old Testament. Understand this, if you just have Genesis through Malachi, you have the instrument that is able to teach you the way of salvation. This man then looks to Abraham and says, no! This is not what they need. They need a miracle. They need Lazarus to rise from the dead and go to them and say, look! See what God has done! What's being held forth to us is this. The Scriptures are necessary if ever we're to avoid hell. But God's grace is necessary to make use of those Scriptures in our lives to give us faith and repentance. And so it's the means of grace, the Word of God here, but the grace of God by those means. So you remember in the book of Acts, there's this record of the Gentiles being brought in. And the apostles go and report to the Jews in Jerusalem. And there's this rejoicing. God has granted them repentance. The same word which some rejected, the same word which was mocked and ridiculed, was made effectual to others. And what do the believers say? God granted them repentance. Salvation is solely by God's grace. He makes use of God's Word, His Word, but He makes use of it sovereignly, powerfully, to save the lost. This is the point that we must wrestle with and see. There's no one here who will be avoiding hell except the God against whom you've sinned is pleased of no other cause than that by His grace He would have mercy upon you. Feel this for a moment. There's nothing, there's nothing you can do to make God save you. There's nothing that you can do that will guarantee your salvation in this life. There's nothing that can force God's hand. There's no amount of tears. 
There's no amount of church attendance. There's no amount of Bible reading or memorization that can force God's hand. You are at the full disposal of God against whom you've sinned to be merciful and to pardon. But before we lose hope, here is the hope. God has been pleased not only to give unto you and to me the Scriptures, but to bring us in His covenant. And to this point, He has surrounded us with His promises. Look what I'll do. I'm the God that saves you. He's appealing. He's pleading. He's uh, crying out as wisdom cries out, How long, O ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity, foolishness? Life is held forth. The door is flung open. And I say, come, if you're thirsty, come. If you're weary, come. I'm pleading, I'm crying out, I'm calling out. Now whatever else this tells us, it tells us this. God is holding forth life to us. That's not something He's doing to everyone else. There are plenty of people who never hear so much as the Gospel one time in their lives. But God comes to you right now, warning against hell and saying the way, the truth, the life is held forth to you. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, as we close, here is something that we must force ourselves to meditate on. Brethren, hear this. Don't write this down. Don't think that's a good point. Go home and actually meditate on this. As difficult as it is, Scripture draws our attention to the misery, the torments of hell. You must meditate on this. You must set aside everything else. You must say to your spouse, take the kids, I'll take them later. You must say to your work, I'll be in at another time. You must say to everything else, I need time to think on this. There are multitudes whom if we could hear them, are screaming out. The torment is unbearable, and yet it's unending. To meditate upon these things. Ever remember that the torments are real. Oh, how our lives pass by. We think of, I've got a vacation coming up. That'll be nice. After that, we get in the doldrums of life. Oh, I've got a new trip coming up. That'll be nice. Oh, the weather's breaking nice. Oh, the flowers are back. That's nice. Understand this. In hell, there's no such thing. The torments are perpetual. We must consider this. Any unbeliever you know, parent, spouse, child, neighbor, anyone else, understand this. They, with every foot, are drawing nearer to this unmovable this unending, this continuous scene and experience of torment. You say, this is too much. How can you imagine this? I've got children, someone says, that except they repent, this is their certainty. You do. I've got parents, except they repent, this is their certainty. You do. Perhaps you're saying, I, except I repent, this is my certain future. You're right. All that's true. But except you come face to face with this, you'll miss out on two important things. First off, you'll miss out on the reality of how heinous your sins are in the face of God. We don't judge our sins by the way the world looks at them. We don't judge our sins by the way we look at them. 
We're to judge our sins by the way God looks at them. How does God look at sin? You want a picture of it? Consider hell. If you're struggling right now for a moment with the thought of, you know what, I don't really see my sins as that big of a deal. You know, I realize sins, I acknowledge that they're sins, but my heart's unmoved by them. Take a moment to meditate. There are people in hell who have done less than you've done in this world. There are people in hell whose torment is unending, who are being punished for fewer sins than you've committed in this world. In fact, there are people in hell who have done far inferior things because they never had the Bible, they never heard the Scriptures, they never heard the Gospel, and yet they're tormented in hell. Your sins are far worse than the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you wish to understand something more of the reality of the wickedness of your sins, think on this. But there's a second thing we miss out on. When we do not think on hell and thus the enormity of our sin, we also miss out on the immeasurable love of Christ Jesus. What did Christ endure while on the cross? It wasn't a swat on the back. It wasn't a little bit of this or that. It was the infinite pouring out of wrath Believer, for your sins. God's wrath swallowed up by Christ. Someone says, well, time out. Wait, He only suffered that for a few hours. Well, who is the He that suffered it? The incarnate Son of God. The incarnate Son of God giving infinite dignity to the temporal measure that He's engulfed by. Yes, but all of this pain, all of this misery poured out upon Him so that the cup of wrath is poured out unto Him and He drinks it dry and there's not a drop left over for you. All of it, every ounce of it, taken upon Himself. And we have at times the slightest thought and we sort of think, huh, the Gospel's pretty good. The Gospel's pretty good? Oh, you know what? Christ is a pretty nice guy. You know, yeah, I sort of like Christ. Yeah, I sort of love Christ. You know what? Yeah, I'll try a little bit more to do things for Him. What in the world are we talking about? Here is the Son of God who takes to Himself humanity that He should endure the infinite wrath of God that you could not endure. He takes it upon Himself. His blood for your blood. His torment for your torment. He takes it up. And we find it hard to cut off speech that is unpleasing to God. We find it hard to put away distractions that contribute nothing to the advance of God's praise. We find it hard to love one another. Brethren, here's one reason we find it hard. We have minuscule understanding of what Christ has done for us. That if we understood something more of hell, we would understand something more of Christ's work, of His love, of His immeasurable greatness in so bearing these things for us. Last among these things, the final exhortation, two in particular. First, to those who either know themselves without Christ or those who are uncertain whether they be with Christ. And hear me well, I say not whether you're in God's covenant, I'm saying whether you have Christ by faith. If you don't have Christ by faith, if you take your last breath today, what you said of Lazarus 
is your unending certainty. You know, what you see in Pilgrim's Progress is the way the world responds to this. A person gets this lodge in their mind. I'm the target of God's wrath. Justly, I dwell in the city of destruction. His wife looks at him and is uh, infuriated by his nonsense. The children are mocking him. The townspeople are ridiculing him. He flees the city of destruction. Everyone makes him to be the laughing stock. But in the whole story, he's the one who has it right. Now, whatever deficiencies John Bunyan has in Pilgrim's Progress, that's not it. He has it right that one who becomes awakened to this looks unto the rest of the world as an insane man. Because now all of a sudden he realizes there's hell opened for me. That unless God converts me, unless God saves me, this is my certain future. There's no changing that. There's no evading it. There's not a plan B. There's no other option. Unless God saves me by faith in Christ Jesus, this is my end. When that grips us, what happens? Nothing else matters. Nothing. Our work doesn't matter. We aren't saying don't work. Our family doesn't matter. No, we aren't saying don't fulfill your responsibilities. What we're saying is everything loses its luster. You know, there are people today who are 65 years old and are thinking, you know, what's the good life from here on out? You know, how can I get this yacht? Now I'm going to pay off all these things and I'm going to have my vacation. I want to serve. I'm now 78 years old. I'm going to make this trip and that trip and the other trip and so on. And never once entertain the thought that if they were to go through the whole world and experience all the best cuisine, and experience all the best music, and experience all the best sights, that in the end they'll have profited nothing because they're Endless reality will be unending misery. Someone who comes to grip with this says, who cares about anything else? I've sinned against God. I deserve just judgment. I must have Christ at all else. And so if we stand uncertain, here's the, here's the, chest, the, the check. Am I showing that by my un? Ending searching of God's Word. You know, people will say this. You know, I'm concerned. I don't know if I'm a sinner. Or I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm trusting Christ. And you see them, and they're reading comic books. You see them, and they're playing video games. You see them, and they're scrolling through social media. You see them, and they're just wasting their time. Whatever concern they have, they aren't awakened. Whatever concern they have, they aren't actually concerned. Because if you're concerned about it, the only focus of your life is, I must have Jesus Christ. He must be mine. Now brethren, if you are a believer indeed, here is your cause of rejoicing. That far from having any need to fear the damnation of hell, you have every reason to look forward to the anticipation of comfort and blessing because of Christ. But there are still people in your lives who have this hell before them. And so it is upon us, however much we'll be laughed at, however much we'll see the furrowed brows of those who despise the truth, however much we'll lose out on friendships, 
will lose out even on family. It is incumbent on us to tell men of the judgment to come. Paul says it this way, knowing then the terror of God. Knowing the terror of God. We make this plea, we appeal, we beseech you. Turn unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we aren't apostles and perhaps we aren't ministers of the Gospel, but surely we have lips and tongues that can move and form the words, there is a hell and there is a Savior. There is a damnation that is just and yet there is a salvation that is gracious. Some of us need to get the phone, put off all the nonsense, and make a phone call and say, I need to tell you something. I may lose my friendship with you about this. Except you repent, you'll perish. I need to tell you something. Mom, Dad, I love you earnestly. But I need to tell you this straight. Unless you repent, you're going to be in hell. Some of us think of that and we feel that for a moment and say, I don't know if I can look at my mom's face and say to her, if you don't repent, you're going to be in hell. I want you to look at your mom's face who's unrepentant and for a moment realize her name is Lazarus or the rich man. Her name is this person. She will be one day in hell except she repents. So which is it? Do we love our mom? Do we love our dad? Do we love our sibling? Do we love our spouse? Do we love our children? Because if we do, will we not go to them and say, there is damnation upon your heels. And except you repent and believe the Gospel, it is a damnation that you'll never have relinquished. But God be praised, mom, dad, sister, brother, co-worker, There is a way of salvation in Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer?